The following is a message from Wellsprings Congregation. My name is Kathy Burkow. My pronouns are she and her. And it's my pleasure today to be, for the first time, your preaching worship leader. Well, thank you. <laughs> Maybe I'll just leave now. Uh, <laughs> so, so it's August. Summer's wrapping up. Most of us, I think, are probably getting ready to reconnect with the routine in the fall or, or else squeezing the last few drips out of the freedom of summer. Many of us might have traveled recently, spent some time away from home. I myself was away last weekend. My family and I slept in three different beds away from home for four, over four different nights between two college visits and a quick vacation weekend away. I've actually spent, slept more nights away from home in hotels between last summer and this summer than in any similar period of my life. It was partly business travel and family vacations, but mostly it was completely unplanned. We spent five weeks in hotel beds between May 25th and June 26th of 2018 after our family suffered a house fire. So I've had a lot of recent experience in hotels. So then it's maybe no surprise that I was drawn to preach on today's Spirit Flicks film, The Florida Project. Have you seen it? Let me know how many of you have seen it. All right. It immerses us in the world of a roadside motel. Um, If we had slides, I'd be able to show you a picture um, of the Magic Castle Inn and Suites, which is a very real hotel, motel on a very real road in Kissimmee, Florida, directly to the southeast of Walt Disney World. And it's the setting for most of our film. The basic gist of the film, if you haven't seen it, is this. It's summertime. We're in the shadow of Walt Disney World and its surrounding tourist resorts. And the camera is following along with some very interesting characters as they go about their days. First, we meet three children, Scooty, Mooney, and Jancy. Nobody's got a predictable name in this film. Mooney, Mooney is probably our main child character. They're all about six years old, and they're all varying levels of brat. Um, I'll tell you, you don't fall for these, you don't necessarily like these kids right off the bat. We're introduced immediately to their misbehavior. They're hollering, running, spitting, laughing, taunting, and cussing. Their days are spent mostly pushing every boundary that's presented to them, but there aren't even that many of those. And their days are are filled with a lot of moments of relatively innocent mischief, largely unsupervised by adults, interspersed with a number of episodes of genuine danger. For much of the film, there's not much apparent plot. Life just happens, and these children navigate it, with a powerful sense of wonder, astonishing levels of imagination, and remarkable innocence. These kids have very little other than their immediate environment and their imaginations to play with, and they make the most of it. You could say that the film's main subject is childhood and the miracle of childhood innocence and imagination as an unending natural resource. But it's not all kids in this film. We quickly discover that the Magic Castle and its neighboring motels are occupied rather rarely with tourists on vacation and mostly with the hidden homeless 
those with barely enough income to avoid living on the streets. It takes a village to raise a child, and there's a village here. It includes a few people over the age of 18 who might or might not be classified as responsible adults, most of whom are some combination of distracted, overwhelmed, overworked, underpaid, or underemployed, or unemployed. There are no easy answers to the challenges that these characters face. They, they form and reform their village constantly as the transient population of families changes in these hotels. But they take care of each other in any way that they can. They feed each other, they clothe each other, they watch each other's kids at night, and they protect each other in whatever ways they can. We meet Mooney's mother, Haley, whose behavior, frankly, makes it hard to respect her or see much hope for her future. We don't know much about her past, other than a recent job as a stripper having been lost, and we learn nothing about her family background how she got where she is today, even how old she is. But it's clear that she was a child herself when she became a mother to Mooney. And it's also clear that she loves her daughter fiercely, and she'll do whatever it takes, both to maintain Mooney's innocence and to keep a roof over her daughter's head week to week at the Magic Castle. Haley's got no real job prospects. She's collecting some very minimal public assistance. And she keeps herself and her daughter fed primarily through the cheerful or sometimes not so cheerful giving of others, primarily a church group that distributes bath goods once a week and a waitress friend, Scooty's mom, Ashley, who shares to-go meals out the back door of the restaurant where she works. Mooney, at the age of six, has become a skilled beggar, talking strangers into paying for her soft-serve ice cream, and seems to be learning on the job every day from her mom, Haley, who's hustling in various ways for cash, putting herself and Mooney at increasing risk as the film goes on. I'm not sure exactly what the filmmakers were trying to say with this film, but I know they did something really special with it. This story about people with no fixed address moved permanently into my head. Of course, having spent so much time in a hotel of late, it stuck with me and comes to mind every time I'm in a hotel. I look around at the people around me. I notice the people who work at the hotel, at the front desk or the breakfast buffet or the housekeeping staff. I notice the other guests who are there for their own reasons that I may not know. I notice the multiple generations of guests of all ages, and I notice how the children do or sometimes do not resemble the adults that they're with. If this, this little village of our film has a hero, it's the one recognizable actor in the film, Willem Dafoe, who plays Bobby, the manager of the Magic Castle. Bobby was nominated, or Willem Dafoe was nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor in this film. Bobby's path is heartbreaking to watch. He's doing all he can every day to keep the place afloat. He's well aware of the mistakes and poor choices of his guests, and he knows that if he, gets, that if he allows anyone to get caught doing anything criminal or lets conditions around the Magic Castle slide, he'll get fired by his absentee boss, and the hotel's guests will end, out on, end up on the street. The residents of his castle disrespect him, mock him, taunt him, and complain to him. And they love him and rely on him to keep the power and water on, 
keep the roof over their heads, and enforce some minimal level of control and order amongst the village. Now, any movie with Willem Dafoe automatically gets me thinking about Jesus, because he played Jesus in The Last Temptation of Christ, a film that was released in 1988. So I'm sneaking another little Spirit Flicks movie in here. It's another film that got, in, got under my skin and comes back to mind for me over and over, 30-plus years after its release. Now, here's a spoiler alert. I mean, for those of you who haven't seen The Last Temptation of Christ, you had 31 years, after all. So uh, I'm going to spoil it for you. <laughs> the Last Temptation of Christ in Scorsese's film is the offer of a typical Jewish man's ordinary family life, a life with a loving spouse and children, work and food and drink and laughter, community and friendship and a safe home, and a chance to grow old and die in that home surrounded by that family. It was, and still is, a controversial theme. The notion that the paradise that Jesus sacrificed by dying willingly for all of humanity was something that so many of us might take largely for granted a home of our own, in a safe community, with people we love who share our days and nights, and maybe even with children we raise to adulthood and launch into their own version of that same paradise. At the same time, we might take this for granted. It's hard to miss the reality that this temptation, a safe home for a family to work, grow, and thrive, is genuinely so far from reality for hundreds of thousands of people worldwide that it's motivated them at great risk to flee their homelands and seek refuge in other lands, to become foreigners in pursuit of this paradise. Now, most of us know, rationally, that nothing's guaranteed in this life. All of us have either personally suffered or know someone who's suffered a trauma of some kind, whether it came as a violence or a theft or a tragedy or a loss to a death that seemingly came too soon. We're all vulnerable. We don't like to face that vulnerability. I think we might all agree that we don't like to face that vulnerability, but we're all subject every day to any number of risks. Not a one of us gets out of this life alive. And I would argue that none of us gets out of it without some measure of suffering. And the characters in the Florida Project are no different. But this film exposes, slowly but surely, that their world, set in the midst of what's supposed to be the happiest place on Earth, is a no-win scenario that almost nobody gets out of unscathed. There's a paper-thin membrane between these people's possibilities of continuing their family life as as it is one more day and all of it falling apart. Their safety net is fragile. Their nest egg is non-existent. Their focus on doing what it takes to get through one more day makes it nearly impossible to think about a future, much less plan for one or take steps to secure it. One job loss, one loud disagreement, one call to the authorities, one citation for a nuisance violation could be the difference for these people between living and loving and carrying on as a family one more day and being separated forever. Jesus, in the Scorsese film, and Jesus of the Bible, did most of his most memorable teaching through parables. And I think that the Florida Project is really a series of parables, stories with a lesson attached. 
So let's take the 10th chapter of Luke, for example. An expert in the law, the religious law, mind you, we're we're talking about religious law, asks Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. So Jesus takes what might at first glance be a pretty safe route in answering, basically asking this lawyer to recite back to Jesus what's written in the law. The command to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. Something tells me that Jesus, who was a really keen storyteller, was smart enough to anticipate that this answer would beg another question. Don't the best stories always do that, force us to consider new questions? So in this case, the lawyer follows up with a good one. Well, who is my neighbor? Well, the answer to this question doesn't come from a recitation of the law. It comes in the form of a story that you've probably heard, the parable of Good Samaritan. First of all, we hear that there's been an assault and robbery on a man, presumably a Jew, who's traveling alone from Jerusalem, a big city, to Jericho, a resort town for the rich. The road he's traveling is a dangerous one. It's about an 18-mile stretch, very narrow but heavily traveled, that was commonly used by caravans of Jewish people and foreigners and known to be frequented by bandits and thieves. So this guy from from Jerusalem probably knew the risks when he set off alone. One might compare it to a somewhat seedy highway traveled by people of many nationalities offering services such as tourist traps, cheap inns for traveling travelers, and not much safety for anyone, especially solo travelers or single jobless mothers, for example. Actually, other than the robbers who beat him up, the only other people we meet in this story are traveling solo. First, our innocent victim, then a priest who sees the man half dead by the side of the road and keeps going without even checking to see if the man is alive. Then a Levite, another member of the priestly class, comes along and does exactly the same thing. So here we have the victim traveling from one part of his country to another, not a foreigner, but a native of this country. And then we have two members of the social, political and religious leadership of this country who apparently have traveled the same road thus far without being jumped by robbers and mugged themselves, who both willfully ignore the needs of their injured countrymen. Then along comes a third solo traveler, a Samaritan, we're told. Now, most of us know the term Samaritan from Bible stories like this one, and the word kind of merges in with kindness and generosity in our minds. But it's important to understand that to the locals, to the people hearing this story when Jesus told it, The Samaritans were bad dudes. These folks were sworn enemies to each other and were most definitely not expected to act neighborly. Every time you encounter one of these stories where Jesus is talking to or about a Samaritan, consider that Jesus is talking about a foreigner, likely a hated enemy, someone that the general population would mistrust, dislike, and see as other. So here we have our unlikely hero, a Samaritan who by all reasonable folks would be expected to do exactly as the priest and the Levite already did, pass by our beaten man without getting involved, without even a word of kindness. But the Samaritan in Jesus' story does the unexpected. He stops. He cares for the man's wounds and his immediate physical needs and then picks him up and puts him on his own donkey and transports him to an inn where he gets him fed and safely housed 
and prepays for several days so that the wounded stranger can recover from his trauma in a safe place. This act of mercy in Jesus' parable is what marks the Samaritan as a neighbor, what makes the Samaritan the one who is following the commandment in the story. It's not the victim's countrymen, not his religious leaders, but the merciful Samaritan, the other guy, the guy who is the last one in the story that we'd reasonably expect to take any personal responsibility for caring for the beaten Jewish man. He's not, by definition, an easily identifiable neighbor to our traveler for any reason other than his merciful behavior. He's not from the same tribe. He's not from the same part of the country. He's not family. He probably practices a different religion. He might have business or personal or economic interests at odds with the interests of the man on the road. He certainly didn't set out on his journey planning to be anybody's savior. He's just making his way along the highway like everybody else, going about his own business. But he and he alone recognizes the wounded man as his neighbor and acts like a neighbor to him right now and for the immediate future. I couldn't help but think of the parallel of the Good Samaritan when I saw the Florida Project. The tightrope that the residents of the Magic Castle and its neighboring hotels are walking is a narrow and dangerous road, not necessarily populated with friends. In one segment of the film, we learn that Bobby has to force residents like Haley and Mooney to pack up their belongings and check out once a month so that they can't establish legal residency. Literally, to keep the roof over their head, they have to move at least once a month. So he here likes to move. I, I don't see any hand. Yeah. Oh, no, no, that was not a hand raised. <laughs> It's stressful. Nobody likes to move. It's one of the top life stressors that scientists have associated to the onset of illness, along with things like losing a job, changes in financial circumstances, experiencing the death of a loved one, divorce or marital separation. We all experience at least some of these things at some time in our lives. But if we're lucky, we don't have to absorb the stress of more than one at a time or too many of them in too short a period of time. We moved five times in five weeks last summer after our fire. Four separate check-ins to hotels, plus a move into our rental townhouse where we stayed for the next 11 months while our house was completely renovated. Then we moved again this May back into our home home. Our own Wellsprings community faced an unplanned move twice last summer as well. I know we're all grateful for the hospitality we received from Mainline Unitarian Church for most of last summer. Our community was shaken, and some of our community relationships were challenged by the circumstances surrounding our displacement from the Montgomery School. For Haley and Mooney, moving every month means packing up everything they own in plastic bags and laundry baskets, hauling it all to another room at the Magic Castle and tossing it in there to wait in storage for the night, and then walking across the highway to another cheap motel to check in for a night before returning back home and moving back in. All of these hotels that are partially surviving by housing the hidden homeless are doing the same. And another village, another safety net is formed. The management of the various motels share the burden and they cooperate in providing options for their various residents to help them all stay in business and out of trouble. But in the film, we see Bobby's working agreement with a neighboring motel fall through. 
the new owner won't honor the affordable night's rate of $35 for Haley, which is literally all the cash she has. So Bobby steps in to pay the difference, but the other innkeeper is still not feeling in a neighborly mood, and Haley and Mooney are refused a room for the night. In this story, even Bobby's Good Samaritan attempt to help Haley and Mooney fails them. The scene makes unambiguously clear the literal vulnerability of this family, being one night away from genuine, no-roof-over-their-heads homelessness. And it's also clear that without an act of mercy, this very young mother and her six-year-old child with virtually no cash and no transportation available to them would have been sleeping under the stars alongside a dangerous road that night. The solution to this case of no room at the inn looks and feels to Mooney like a fun sleepover at her friend Jancy's place. But what it really is, is a homeless family sharing a too small motel room with another homeless family for the night. Jancy's grandmother, who started the film as something of an antagonist to Haley, has become her neighbor in the village. And Haley and Mooney are safe for one more night. It's just one little story with an uneasy lesson in a film full of little stories with uneasy lessons to swallow. But the fact is, we never heard the the end of the story of the man who was beaten up on the road to Jericho. We don't know whether the Good Samaritan's mercy on the road and at the inn was enough. The Florida Project pushes its parables further. It explores very realistic consequences for people living on a tightrope woven from strands of imagination, luck, and hope strung across a pit of disaster. The Florida Project is hard to watch. It's at times cringeworthy, often lewd and crude, and only occasionally funny. But it feeds us its message through parables about people we don't particularly know or have reason to care about, whose behavior we might find it much easier to judge than to support. People we might generally blame for their own mistakes rather than empathize. But the film does its work. It eats at us. It gets under our skin and opens our eyes to something much more memorable than judgment or victim blaming. It encourages us to notice each other more, imagine more, care more, give more and risk more. It asks us to recognize that we belong to each other and that we have neighbors we've been passing by on the road. The Florida Project asks us to ask ourselves over and over again, who is my neighbor? What is my responsibility? Where do compassion and empathy belong among my life's priorities? Who deserves my love and support? Why haven't I fallen through my safety net? Or if I have, who lifted me up when I did and why? People seem to either love or hate this film, and I I get it. It's a realistic movie in a setting that straddles a world of imagination and fantasy juxtaposed with desperate need. To really engage with this film requires the viewer to surrender both to whimsy and to vulnerability. It's a tall order. This acceptance of vulnerability, this willingness to imagine and set our hopes on the future while also facing the harsh realities and tenuous safety nets of our present, it takes courage to be fully present to all of that. Most of us would rather pretend 
and keep on walking past as long as we can manage to. What my family went through last year, what Wellsprings went through last summer, neither was truly homelessness, but they were experiences of fragility and shared vulnerability that changed us all. I'm grateful that our community is one that is brave enough to face its vulnerabilities and that we truly belong to each other. I don't think I've ever felt as fragile or as supported as I did that first Sunday after our house fire. We came to Wellsprings that Sunday raw and sleep-deprived and trembling from trauma. We came just barely having turned the corner from terrified to hopeful that our dog, Penny, would survive her serious case of smoke inhalation. I sat on that bench over there with Reverend Lee after the service, and for a few minutes, I completely let down my guard and allowed myself to just need. I dictated her a list of what my family needed, our wish list to help us survive the next few days and weeks. It was everything from a grocery list for our hotel suite kitchen to a pair of boots for a costume for one of the kids' school play to a copy of the Bible and a Brene Brown book that didn't smell like smoke to a dog bed for Penny, who'd be discharged from the veterinary ICU that afternoon, to a fuzzy blanket to snuggle under. By Monday evening, everything urgent on our list had been provided, delivered to our attention at the Homewood Suites without us lifting a finger. Our Wellsprings community cared for us and carried us that week and month and through the next year, showing support while giving us space to breathe, listening when we needed to talk and inspiring us when we needed to listen, giving us outlets for service while letting us draw our own boundaries on how much time we could devote to showing up here. Through it all, the sense of belonging, the safety net, was evident. We knew that our ordeal was temporary, but it was significant, and it helped us to know that when we returned to a relatively normal pattern of life, or a new normal at least, we'd do so with Wellsprings as part of our story. I think most people generally are willing, even eager, to be that safety net for our neighbors when they need us. But sometimes it takes a crisis, a mugging on the road of life, for that need to be evident. The question I hope we keep asking ourselves and keep asking each other is, what do you need to survive or even to thrive? It it was scary to face that problem for my family last May. But facing that vulnerability in a crisis time reminded me that everyone has needs. Everyone is my neighbor, and I am everyone's neighbor. We belong to each other. And the more we are willing to admit our own fragility, travel the dangerous roads of life together, and share our neighbor's burden, the less likely we all are to succumb to the threats of this world. Ultimately, that sense of belonging to each other in this moment and for the briefest future that we can accurately project is all that we really have. And it's good to know that it's enough. Will you pray with me? Spirit of love, of life, of suffering, and of redemption, be with us today and every day as we share our vulnerabilities and our hopes for our lives our families, our neighbors, and our communities. 
Help us to be good neighbors to each other and help us to recognize and be merciful to the neighbors we might pass by, knowing that as we protect one another and help each other carry our loads, we are strengthening the fragile strands of a safety net. Be with us as we work, as we yearn, as we mourn, as we sing, as we dance, as we scream, and as we pray. Amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.